0: This episode is a conversation with Will Cowell DeGrucci, founder and CEO of InfoGrid. We talked about InfoGrid's founding story and how they've shot up out of nowhere in the last three years and have gotten so much early traction. Then we took a bit of a deep dive into several of the use cases InfoGrid's solutions enable. I love these specifics, so definitely check out how they're enabling time savings and helping automate human processes at the heart of facility management. Without further ado, please enjoy the Nexus Podcast with Will Cowell-Degrucci. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. Can you introduce yourself?
1: Hi, James. Pleasure to be here. So I'm Will Cowell-Degrucci. I am the founder of a company called InfoGrid. We will, I'm sure, talk about InfoGrid at length later. Just start by saying, yes, uh, that is a ridiculous surname. Yes, it's been the bane of my life. But at least it's interesting. Uh, In the days where you used to get a lot of physical mail, you know, instead of spam email, physical mail spam, the amount of permutations I got on it were amazing. <laughs> I'm sure cowl the blue cheese, kangarooshi, calden bluesie, cowbell de <laughs> grouchy. So yeah, I feel like I should have got extra marks in every exam just for having to take the time to write that at the top.
0: That's awesome. But
1: I just go by will now, so that's helpful.
0: That is helpful. When I was a kid, uh, I you know, whenever I would get moody, my friends would call me Grumpy Jim and that was actually when i first saw your last name i thought i like grouchy was in my head i was like (laughs) i wonder if he gets you know shit for for
1: uh as you can probably tell from the accent i am british born uh now a u.s resident but ancestrally we're french and when we were in france our surname was spelt g-r-o-u-c-h-y which is just grouchy in english so <laughs> when we moved over about 200 years ago to, to the uk we dropped the o for obvious
0: reasons uh, okay got it that makes sense oh, very cool so where are you? Where are you located now, then, and where where were you from? So
1: I'm currently talking to you from London. Uh, it really changes week to week um, where I am, but I spend uh, about fifty fifty of my time between uh london and and predominantly sort of eastern seaboard us mm. so yeah it could be atlanta it could be it could be florida new york or uh, increasingly a large amount of time in chicago hoping to move to texas next year austin if, if everything goes to plan and originally so i was born in the i was a navy brat so my dad was was in the navy i was born in in portsmouth uh, on the south coast of england which is sort of the home of our navy i uh, moved around a bit for the first uh, sort of five years of my life, while he was still in the navy, then sort of settled in that that kind of area uh, until I was eighteen when I went off to to Oxford for university.
0: Cool. My only connection to Portsmouth is uh, when I played college soccer football for you, and mm. Callum Angus from Portsmouth, uh, UK, was one of the best players I've ever played soccer with. And he, he hailed amazing. Portsmouth. Yes, amazing, amazing player. So he's probably not listening to this, but it, maybe it'll get around him at some point. So. You know, I, I was
1: watching some US soccer games because you know you got full on league now and stuff. It's really starting to, oh, yeah. take, to take off. you. The... I was mm. watching some US soccer games um, the other day, actually in the gym. So they had the sort of sports screens up and they're playing these different soccer games while I was running. Very high scoring <laughs> compared to a, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of English matches are like one nil or yeah. Premier mm. League or, or you know nil, and these are like five three or something. <laughs> more interesting to watch, actually.
0: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think that's the defense isn't as good, but it could be that we have great offense over here too.
1: Who knows? Yeah, no, I think it's it's t- it's typically just because they're a little bit less far along in their journey of a game, yeah. and then when everybody works it out, they tend to get a bit more boring. But yeah, uh, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, amazing.
0: cool. Well, tell me about your your background. We'll get into Infogrid obviously in a minute, but uh, can you talk more about your background beforehand?
1: Yeah, for sure. And actually, sort of the, the the sort of two interlink in a way, because it's because of that that journey I went on that, that InfoGroup came about. But I would say that I had a relatively eclectic background. So as I mentioned, uh went to university in Oxford and graduated in, in 2009 in the midst of the financial crisis. And I think it's fair to say that, you know, it's a fairly traditional university. And when, when you go there, you get put on one of three treadmills generally like <laughs> consultancy law or finance those are like the careers that are sort of most most apparent I think I think if you were there now like big tech would probably be there too you're sort of your your fan kind of companies but at the time those seem to be the only careers in the world so despite being a history major I ended up on the finance route and um, despite it being the midst of the biggest financial meltdown in our living history still somehow managed to get a job in finance upon graduation so I went to, to work for a company called Fidelity which is well known in, in the U.S. as well. Uh, so it's Fidelity International, which is a sort of an EMEA-facing branch. And I was looking after global emerging markets equity research, basically. So that was great grounding, but definitely not my long-term calling, is what I would say. So okay. as you've probably been able to tell from the first couple of minutes of this podcast, I'm quite a gregarious individual. Right? <laughs> I'm very outgoing. I, I draw energy from interaction with other humans. And that is not something you get an abundance of in an analyst's role. You know, it was me, my three screens, my cubicle. I actually tracked it one day. I spoke 48 words to another human being all day. And I was kind of like, I'm not sure this is my long term. So very, very, first of all, very grateful to have have been there at that time and really learned a lot, a great amount around sort of analytical rigor about what it's like to be within a large organization, how uh, publicly traded companies are viewed by big institutional investors, all of which is really valuable life experience. But I felt like I was missing a couple of really core skills for what I wanted to do long term. Which I, I think, you know, this is a bit of rose-tinted spectacles looking backwards, but in the back of my head, I've always wanted to do something entrepreneurial. And, and maybe you can kind of circle back to the, the why around that in a bit. But as I thought about this and, and kind of worked through my graduate scheme there, I was thinking, what, what is it that I really want to get my next career move to kind of set me up for the for longer term? And I realized there were there were a few things. So I was definitely looking for practical teamwork experience, which I really wasn't getting. Like notionally as a part of a team. But kind of, we just had our own stocks and we covered those, you know, so you did or your own region, you cover those. Uh, Then really, I wasn't getting any leadership experience at all, practical or otherwise, right? And I definitely wanted uh, wanted some of that. I wanted a bit more intellectual variety and stimulation, because although the job that I was doing was relatively challenging to get your head around, once you had, it was a relatively repetitive process. Mm -hmm. You applied the same methodology to to different markets. Um, Then I missed the camaraderie of Oxford. Oxford's a collegiate university, so you... You tend to be in groups of a few hundred in your year group. And so it's very close and you live very closely with them within university accommodation, in my instance, for every year of my time there. And so not not dissimilar from being in in a fraternity. And then finally, honestly, I was in my early 20s. I wanted some adventure. So all of those roads sort of led me towards the military. And I thought I would join the army and become an officer, go through Sandhurst. But I did have one consideration around that, which I just couldn't quite reconcile my head with, which is, you know, when you join the military, uh, as I'm sure is true in, in the US as well, you sign up for a minimum of four years, right? Because they invest a lot in training you and so forth. So it's mm-hmm. not like you can just give your notice and walk away. And that's it. You, you you are in for a minimum four years. And it's a very physical and disciplined environment, especially at the beginning, right? So I was like, well, before I sign up to minimum of four years, I put a check you know if I like and can handle that kind of physicality and, and discipline so where can I get that kind of experience in the world without being in the military and so after a random encounter in a bar in Australia on, on, a, on a holiday <laughs> I'd heard about these these mixed martial arts training camps that they have in in the jungles in Thailand basically Whoa. Uh, where you know a lot of the USC fighters and things go to train so I was like I could do that. Uh, why not? And that sort of, uh, that was my idea. And it, it you know—it wasn't obviously just like the military, but there's a lot of similarities to basically how I think the army was probably a hundred years ago. They so, say, you know, you've got to do these press ups or I'm going to hit you with a stick. And I'll show you the stick. <laughs> you're like, okay, I'll do the press ups. Uh, not allow the stick anymore in the, in the army, but same kind of thing. And, and I ended up loving it. You know, I intended to go for a month, just to test. And after that month was up, I realized, okay, like I'm definitely going for the military thing but I love this. And the process to, to apply Santa is very rigorous. It's an eight stage um, application, including eight uh, cumulative eight days of residential assessment. And for most of it though, it's just waiting, right? Like waiting for slots to come available on those, those assessment centers and so on. And so I had about six months of waiting and I was like, well, why not just stay here? And so I did, right? Okay. And and so I ended up doing this sort of six months in, and I'd only intended to do the training. Uh, but then after you know, sort of staying six months, I kind of slept walked into having a few competitive fights. So I gave my mother a heart attack. You know, uh, I wouldn't say I had an illustrious career. Lost my first fight by getting choked unconscious, but uh <laughs> did, did win my second one at least. But loved it. Just really, really glad I I, I did it. And even, the, even the, the fight that I lost, which was definitely one of those sort of David Goliath stories where... I was David, but you know, Goliath really won. <laughs> I'm very proud to have kind of got into the ring against the odds and, and, and there's some similarities there, I guess, to, to the world of startups. But then yeah, came back, you know, redoubled in my uh, belief that, that the military makes sense. Went through Sandhurst, which is 11 month intense training. Uh, and anyone who says it was fun, is too far away from it. I'm not quite far enough away from it yet, (laughs) where I'm still like, yeah, you know, it was great and it was formative, but it was 11 months of unrelenting misery. Let's call a spade a spade here. So did Sandhurst and I did four years of what's called regimental duty. So so being out in my regiment, I was a tank commander and a regiment called the King's Royal Hussars. So used to be horses now now tanks was amazing you know got to go all sorts of places overseas from from the Middle East to Eastern Europe to Canada the Philippines Kenya all those kind of things amazing time It's amazing people the beauty of the army is you you immediately go into command out of Sandhurst so so right out of Sandhurst I was in command of 16 men and four main battle tanks, and then in my subsequent posting, postings of two years, uh, I was in command of 50 men, so that was great. But I uh, definitely felt like after those first four years of regimental duty, I had kind of juiced the orange, uh, so let's say 90% for, for the kind of stuff that I was wanting to get out of it, and that any subsequent jobs I might have had within the Army would have been more building the skill set towards a long-term career in the Army, which, which wasn't, wasn't my game plan. So at the end of 2016, I left and and I actually went back to the world of finance initially into uh, what's called commercial due diligence for for private equity deals. So I worked for a consultancy, and broadly speaking, we would we would go into businesses and assess whether or not they were as good in practice as they looked on paper uh, when they were trying to attract e- either buyout or investment. And it's actually it's actually through this that that Infogrid ended up coming about. So I'll just okay. briefly pause to say what Infigrid is in a nutshell, and then go with that. So Infigrid, we, we exist to help our clients who are anyone who deals with a large amount of real estate. So that could be companies directly who are obviously operating their own real estate. It could be service providers, so particularly facilities managers, both hard and soft facilities managers globally, or landlords, so the owners of large amounts of real estate. We help those, those companies to capture data where it doesn't currently exist. And use it to solve real-world problems. And those real-world problems tend to be around estates, premises, facilities management, uh, and upstream to the broader ESG agenda. And um, you might be wondering, like, how on earth did uh, a guy from you know finance and the army with a history major get interested in, in the world of facilities management? Which I do appreciate is kind of a weird thing to have gotten interested. But it happened kind of by accident, almost. So. Uh, was working in commercial due diligence and yes I was doing market research and competitive research at a desk but I was also physically going to visit a lot of different businesses on a weekly basis to look for problems frankly you know so everything from you know they say they got a warehouse full of shoes show me the warehouse full of shoes to you know were they adhering to health and safety guidelines were they uh, meeting their compliance regulations? Were they operating their facilities as eff- effectively as they could? Mm, okay. What I noticed really quickly in the process of doing that was just how bad, frankly, every company was at the capture and use of, well, really any data, but especially real time data. Uh, and that they just weren't using this effectively to, to then run their uh, kind of facilities management. And that struck me as crazy, right? Because so this was 2017. So the Internet of Things was not new, been around for decades. And we were then existing at that time in an age of hyper-powerful cloud computing, miniaturized devices, omnipresent connectivity. So I thought, how, how, how can it be that they're not using this? Why? Why not? And I was lucky enough to be able to ask that question of a lot of different companies without looking like a weirdo, right? <laughs> like, why? Why are you not doing this? And uh, the answer that came back was, was remarkably consistent. They said, well, look, it's either too complicated, too expensive, or usually it's both of those things. So I realized that it was perceived as not scalable. And the real competition here was inertia. It was like a, a clipboard from the 50s. yeah. And yeah. so it was just ripe for change. And like, astounding. the your Real estate is the largest asset class in the world. It's where we as humans spend 90% of our time. And it's accountable for 39% of global emissions. That's a pretty insane thing not to have digitized. And so that was kind of the first kernel and then got more specifically interested in facilities management for a couple of reasons. so, so Jll have this statistic that I heard at the time and it's 33300 and that says for any given real estate on average, a company will be paying corporate real estate this is a company will be paying three dollars per square foot per year in energy and utilities. per square foot per year on rent and maintenance for the space but $300 per square foot for the people within that space. And so there's been, and, and I think, James, you, you yourself come from an ESCO background, right? There have been people going after energy savings in buildings for decades, right? Yeah. That part is not new. It is certainly more in vogue recently with the, the advent of, you know, net zero pledges and so forth. And e- But even with increasing energy prices, as we see certainly across North America and Europe, uh, it's still very hard to generate really strong returns on investment of any kind of technology in that space because energy is cheap ultimately, and we can debate for, for days whether it should be and whether there should be ta- carbon taxes involved. But the reality is at the moment, it is. Mm-hmm. And businesses, whilst many of them have fantastically good intentions around reductions of their, their carbon footprint and other environmental uh, initiatives, they are still businesses and ultimately, bottom line is king, right? So I was a realist and I realized if you're going to deliver uh, a service, it needs to have some kind of uh, ROI for the client. And it's far easier to generate an ROI from a $300 per square foot spend than it is from a $3 per square foot spend, right? Because if you save 1% of that $300, it's the equivalent of 100% of energy, and you never can save that. So that's facilities management, right? That is people in spaces. So that started to get really interesting. And the second thing is the homogeneity of it, because it doesn't matter if you are a serviced office, a retailer, a hospital, everybody has some kind of facilities manager, and you know what, they care about broadly the same things. Everyone's got toilets that need cleaning, a leak is a leak no matter where you are, Everyone needs to care about air quality in their building because we're all breathing the same air when we go in there and many more beyond. So that meant that a uh, a product built aimed at facilities managers had massive reach across different uh, verticals. And so that's how we approach this from the beginning. Another question that people then ask is often, well, you're not technical in background. Like you don't have any IoT background. Why would you think to do this? And I would actually rebuff that and say, that's the advantage. (laughs) <laughs> because what I found in doing my research for this business was over and over again, you'd find really over-engineered solutions from people who'd spent 40, 50 years working in an OEM. They'd found a technology, taken it, and then tried to shoehorn it into a problem, right? And that meant that it was over-engineered. It was too expensive. It was impossible to install. Like, it wasn't user-friendly, those kind of things. I came at this from a perspective of, like, I'm Joe Blogs on the street. If I don't understand how to use this... How on earth is my facilities manager my nurse my cleaner my security guard going to pick this up and use it and you need them to be able to use this otherwise you can't get the majority of the value that is available there in that 300 bucks right so it's all about making their jobs better by right? Repl- replacing really menial laborious predominantly compliance checks so that they can get back to doing their core jobs and uh and so going at that from a what's the problem and how do we solve it perspective. Uh, has actually been a massive advantage and uh you know and what we do is listen to our clients and then we don't build what they say because it's that henry ford you know if you ask my clients what they want it's a faster horse but it's taking the crux of the problems that we hear time and time again distilling what it really is and how we can fix that that's kind of how we approach things so yeah, in a nutshell, that's a quite large nutshell. <laughs> that's my background and and how I went from army to to the world of of buildingxiety.
0: Awesome, such a great such a great story. Thanks for taking us through all those details. I think my own like nerd founder in me is like wanting to ask you nitty gritty details on the early days, but I think for the audience's perspective, we should sort of zoom in on what what is Infogrid today like? Can you talk about you know how it exists and what what the what the product is like today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we are software, software as a service platform powered by machine learning and AI at the cloud level at our core. What we do then is we are totally agnostic to physical device, but we work with a network of uh, sensors. They can be pre-existing in your building or we can supply and commission them into the building for you to solve problems. So if you come to us and say, right, and, and this is a popular one at the moment for obvious reasons, right? I want to understand the utilization of my building. The first thing we'll say is why. And you'll say, well, I think that I'm cleaning it too much and I have too much real estate space that is fixed desk and actually people want to use it as meeting rooms in the, in the post-COVID one. Okay, fantastic. We will then drill into what is the simplest, lowest cost and therefore most scalable way to get you the data that you need. And we will use the best devices that that are out there to gather that. Now that doesn't mean that it needs to be a sensor designed to capture occupancy data. We have, and I can actually hold one up, an algorithm that can turn a micro sensor like this, two centimeters by two centimeters by two millimeters that only captures temperature into a 97.5% accurate desk occupancy reach. For those listening on a podcast, it looks like a little Scrabble tile. That's not what the sensor is uh, designed to do, but we are leveraging the power of cloud compute to be able to extract uh, a more useful data point from a simple reading. And why do we do that rather than buy something that is designed bespoke to capture desktop occupancy data? Well, we do it because that allows for a much simpler and lower cost deployment, which is what you really need to scale. And because of this agnosticism, we then need to have what I like to call a translation service for IoT, right? So this is how do I, I take lots of different data from lots of different manufacturers of devices and make it all speak the same language. And that means, all the same language so it can be in the same platform or API, but also all the same language so it can interact with each other. So sometimes it might be five different sources of occupancy data that we blend together. Uh, Sometimes it might be occupancy data plus air quality plus uh, risk of Legionnaire's disease in your pipes or whatever it (laughs) may be. But, you know, taking lots of different disparate data sources and allowing them to be interoperable, which is really key for the broader ESG agenda, which I'll come to in a bit. So, yeah, we will understand what your problem is. We will then make a recommendation as to an overall solution and we'll provide that as a service. So that service will include hardware, software, uh, cloud storage, customer support, uh, all that kind of stuff. And they they typically, as I said earlier, tend to revolve around uh, facilities management related use cases So that could be, managing your water management plan and, and Legionnaire's disease compliance. Hmm. It could be your air quality in your office and, and risk of viruses. It could be, you you know, right-sizing your occupancy and using it to deliver smart cleaning, or it could be sort of more hard maintenance tasks, so preventative maintenance of key equipment, leak detection, that sort of stuff. Basically anything that you need to know to, to effectively run uh, your building. And then the, the aim is always how do we automate away needless manual tasks make you more efficient, both from a labor perspective, so you can have your engineers or your on-site facilities managers spend their time doing their actual core cool job as opposed to going around with a clipboard. And how do we then also generate, you know, environmental and health benefits along the way? So the, the, the point is you'll have an ROI from the use case going in, and then you have second and third order effects. And finally, you'll be generating a vast amount of data that didn't exist before, which you can then interplay with the other data points that you're capturing through Infogrid to make your buildings healthier, uh, more environmentally friendly, and, and your team happier.
0: Very cool. It feels like the main differentiator is around adding new sources of data than what was there before. Am I capturing that correctly? Like existing building automation or metering or whatever other systems are, are already installed? Yeah,
1: exactly. So at so a certain size and certainly a certain level of modernity. Many buildings will have what's called a building management system or a BMS, and this is really the, the bowels of the building, right? So that's controlling things like your heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, is known as HVAC. And it can be controlling your elevators and your escalators and, and so forth, right? And so that's capturing some data, but they're very, very, you know, those systems are, are, tend to be installed at in construction of the building and they, they can run to the millions of dollars. And any sensing that they do tends to be around, then, the operation of the bigger system. So they may have thermostats to help control HVAC units, right? and And there'll be different levels of smartness around them. What we do then is the ability to, if you don't have one of those, create an alternative at a very low cost to gather that kind of data. And if you do have one of those, augment it and many other systems that you might have in a space with lots of data. Really key point about what Infigrid does is we recognize that buildings are an ecosystem. There are lots of different things going on and will be lots of different things going on. We don't seek to own all of that. We seek to help you capture real-time data and then you can use us end-to-end. We have dashboards and alerts and reporting and all those kind of features if you don't have anything. But if you have a CAFM system or a BMS or a uh, tenant engagement platform or whatever it may be, the data from our platform can feed into that through our open API. We don't restrict access to it because we consider it to be your data. And then you can automate away tasks. So, you know, sensor detects a leak. CAFM system creates a work ticket to go and deal with that leak before a human ever saw saw it. That kind of thing.
0: Got it. Hey, guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexislabs.online. All right, back to the interview. All right. And, and where, what kind of sort of traction do you guys have today? What, what countries are you in? What types of buildings are you in? What sizes of buildings? It sounds like this might play across yep. a wide spectrum.
1: So we're into the hundreds of thousands of devices deployed, over 20 million of square feet, about square feet of, of buildings covered. Uh, which represents thousands of buildings and that's globally. Uh, So we originated out of of London, UK. We now have offices in London, uh, various states in New York, Estonia, hot off the press, France, Germany, and soon Asia Pacific as well. We're already operating in in all of those regions though, because our our clients tend to be global blue chip companies or global service providers who obviously have real estate all over the place. Yeah, growing, growing very fast. So if you're listening to this podcast, anytime, Time that's not September 2021. All of these, th- all of these statistics will be absolutely, yeah. So, uh, sort of averaging over a thousand percent year-on-year growth
0: at the moment. Amazing. How, how do you look back? So, you started this three years ago. Mm-hmm. That's incredible growth for this industry. What, what do you attribute that to?
1: I think that there is a combination here. So, as I say, you know, the, the technology that sort of makes up. The overall solution, especially in terms of IoT and sensors, that's that's not new. What has really advanced in the last five years massively, and even the last couple of years since we've been going, is the, the power of cloud compute and what you can achieve there. So how can you leverage that data better? And so I think that the technology that you needed to be able to deliver that, that that's available to us, and that's been obviously uh, incredibly powerful. Then I think that we took risks at the right time. So... You know, we started from this philosophy that this is very important, that this is going to be a big thing before that became obvious to the sort of wider market, which it, it clearly is now. Uh, that meant that we were kind of in the right place at the right time when COVID hit. Right? We had technologies when everybody started going, oh, wow, we can't put people on the ground. What can we do to kind of look after our facilities when no one's there? And we had nascent relationships with a lot of those, those companies. And they said, oh, well, why don't we look at expanding this, this infra-grid? So that was definitely, definitely a tailwind. And then the whole process of COVID has really advanced uh, the ESG agenda. The hallmarks were there before, but what we saw in the initial months of COVID is when the stock market really fell off, ESG positive stocks really were more resilient and then delivered better growth and returns over the subsequent period. Hmm. We're now starting to see really large amounts of ESG-related debt instruments go out into the market, which is important for real estate holders. We're seeing premiums being attracted on ESG-friendly properties. So that's higher occupancy rates, that's higher fees being paid per square foot. And then we're starting to see government action around penalizing poor performance around health and wellness and, and environmental sustainability. So all of that has meant that the large companies and real estate owners of the world are suddenly going, we need to... To take ESG seriously and appointing a lot of people. And, and so, you know, that's been, been our vision ever since my personal passion in life is, uh, and, and, and always has been the preservation of the natural world. Right. So I sort of mentioned earlier in our conversation that I, I always felt like I was going to be an entrepreneur. And, and, and again, you know, I'm slightly painting this backwards. So I don't know if you'd ask me at this time whether I really knew all of the details that I'm saying now. But when I was 18, I went and did some volunteering with, with an organisation called Rally International, which is which is out of the UK. And they went out to Costa Rica and Nicaragua and did uh, various different projects. So one social building a school, uh, one which was sort of personal uh, strength building, trekking coast to coast, but one which was all about natural preservation, working on a newly formed national park within... Costa Rica and what we were doing there was things like clearing watering holes clearing paths through the, the park to keep people in the right areas and, and then helping to reintroduce species and it was both the most rewarding and the most frustrating work because in the one sense you have this huge sense of satisfaction you know I've really done something today uh, but in another sense, like all I've done is what I could do with my two hands right it was right. so immensely non-scalable and so I then was looking out at these various amazing entrepreneurs out there who were having all these kind of big impacts impacts on the on the planet and going wow they really are having influence at at scale how do how do you get there and I sort of felt that there were two routes politics or or entrepreneurship and you know I didn't feel that that politics was for me so it was really entrepreneurship and I think what you can get through entrepreneurship is uh, a platform so where you are able to communicate much like we're doing now on this podcast to a wider audience um you get a an element of you know if the more successful you get the more people are willing to take your call uh, and actually discuss things and then finally you know if things go well you might get a bit of your own financial resource that you can you can dedicate to the the causes you care about and so that you know that for me we things like stopping deforestation stopping extinction of pe- species rewilding of land preserving the oceans and of course sitting over them all climate change so that to me was always burning away in my back in the back of my mind uh thinking how uh do we get there and so this esg agenda that we now see changing uh very rapidly the face of business has been a passion of mine for a long time and so it's another component of, of where we've got to is everybody within our business you know now into the hundreds of people we are passionate about the stuff we really care about the mission of what we're doing so Yes, each building block, each use case generates a, a financial ROI for our clients, but it's also building towards making those buildings healthier and sustainable. As I said earlier, 90% of our time is spent in buildings and it's 39% of global emissions. So you put a big dent in that, you put in a bigger dent in one of the biggest problems our world faces. And... Um, and so let me give you an example. We have, a, we have a use case. It's all about monitoring Legionnaire's disease, which is a waterborne disease that thrives in stagnant, tepid water. So what you need to do is basically make sure your water is at the right temperature, either nice and cold or nice and warm, and running frequently. That's often done by sending somebody every month to go and run all those taps because the taps aren't smart and you have no idea, even though you strongly suspect that, say, for example, in an airport, they are being run all the time. You can't <laughs> prove it. And so to be safe, you send someone to go and do it. Well, just think about how wasteful that is, right? You um, are sending a human out to spend hours of travel and labour time to do a task that is basically just running a tap and scribbling something on a, on a clipboard. But that human probably went there exclusively for that Uh, task in a gas powered vehicle. So that's unnecessary emissions. And then they're running these taps, which is water just down the drain for no reason. And that water's probably been heated by natural gas. So that's more unnecessary emissions. And I can actually quantify this. We had a a recent financial services client where we deployed to some 560 sites with them. And they're doing it because they save about $3 million a year in labor against an investment of about $700,000, right? But they are also saving 8.5 million liters of water Per year, wow. And 800 tons of carbon emissions per year. So that's not the primary reason they put it in, but that is a massive positive contributor to the overall ESG, ESG agenda of that company. And this is my sort of general view on how you do things is that they don't like sustainability doesn't need to be anti-business. You can do things in a smart way, leveraging technology that achieves a positive business outcome and a sustainability agenda. And I think that's a really good example of it. What you also do in the process of, of putting that system in is gather a huge amount of data you didn't have before. Before you had one data point, right? That clipboard reading every month. Now you get a reading every 30 seconds, and that can help you to do all sorts of things from preventative maintenance of the system, etc. But then when you get more data, so that's great. I know what my risk of legionnaires is, but. And then when i know how many people are in my building as well i can correlate those data points and they become one plus one equals three then i could add in maybe my cleaning schedule and then i could add in my air quality the outdoor conditions etc and suddenly so build up a really big holistic picture of how well my building is doing against sustainability goals and what i can do to fix them so back to your original question and i appreciate the answer's been something of a long one why, why do you think that we've been able to to be successful in, in this time um combination of right technology at the right time when when need came about so a bit of luck and a bit of making our own luck and then a, a real dedication to what our technology can achieve it's 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 not a job it's a mission for not only me but the entire company and i would say also we haven't achieved anything yet, right? This is this is not even the beginning of, of our journey. And I truly believe that we can change the world for the better and, and help us to enjoy all of the, the modern comforts that we have in our buildings, but in a much more sustainable way that we don't need to sacrifice the planet for our for our next generations.
0: That's awesome.
1: Great, great long answer.
0: I loved it. What strikes me also like a core piece of the the success and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just kind of repeating it back to you is that you developed a low cost and sustainable or scalable solution as well. And what strikes me as like two core components of the, the ability for this to be low cost is these sensors. So you held one up for people that can't see. It looks like a little scrabble piece. I want you to talk about the sensors, but it also strikes me as like, There's a certain amount of install and design cost here that if if I'm correct about this, you guys are designing once calling it this use case that anyone can, any client future in the future can then use. So you're sort of making the design aspect of smart buildings sort of scalable as well, because you're kind of designing it and then making it so that it can be rinse and repeated across any building. Is that
1: Exactly right. So so let me let me answer your first question first and then, then I'll come to, to the second piece. So talking about, quote unquote, the sensors, we, we are agnostic to hardware. So we are not a manufacturer ourselves of hardware. What yeah. we do is go out, find what we believe is best on market to achieve what we want to achieve. So that's, that's simplicity and low cost. We also have a couple of other key parameters. Security is a very, very important point around Internet of Things deployment. Everyone's heard the story about the fish tank that took down the casino, right? Yeah. So that means for us typically that, will connect to the cloud via cellular so that we don't need to go onto our clients' networks. So we often make that a a requirement of the devices that we're providing. We're also a massive fan of wireless. So wherever possible, completely wireless battery operated with multi-year lifespan. It's really important. And so what we then need to do is like working within those parameters, we need to find devices that we think are excellent to deploy in space. Most of the time, they won't give their, you know in their core design the exact data point that the client needs to solve the problem so mm-hmm. that's where we then apply our source if you will our intelligence right so that's everything from assimilating and converting that data combining it with other pieces to running that through machine learning and an ai to turn it into something so you know a reading of temperature becomes 97.5 percent accurate desk occupancy the same sensor can be used for understanding whether or not water is moving within the pipe. So so those those are sort of um the patented pieces. When when we talk about the sensors, the key thing is is that real ease of install and, and being at a price point that's there, all, while, all whilst being secure. So we're always, you know, if anybody who is listening is is in the physical manufacturer of sensor space, we're always up for talking to to new new players in the space and and putting them into our ecosystem and ass- assessing whether they might be a good partner for certain use cases. And then uh, to your second point, about the sort of scalability of it. So, so that's exactly it. You know, we're in the world of data, everybody always talks about data, but one, uh, and, and of course we have billions and billions of hard data points, sensor readings, right? And those are very important for our uh, machine learning uh, algorithms to continue to learn and improve. But we also have a lot of soft data. We have just spent a lot of time on site with a lot of cleaners and security guards and nurses and facilities managers, engineers. So we understand what the problems are. We understand how they use or don't use software, why they haven't used previous solutions. And then when we build, we build with that in mind, right? So so what you get is not something that everybody's 100% happy with, but that everybody's 80% happy with. And, Mm -hmm. And that makes it transferable. And so that means when somebody comes to us, it doesn't matter whether a retailer, an office, or residential. We can say, well, look, we understand this problem, and this is the solution, and it kind of holds regardless of what it is. And then, because we don't restrict the onward use of our data, you know, fully open API. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the phrase of our data is wrong. It's it's our client's data. Then if they want to go that last 20% and really customize or personalize it, they can build their own application and integrate it to that, their own data lake or whatever it may be, but they can use us end to end if they want to. So that gives it this, this repeatability and scalability, not only to other buildings of that type. So say we built a solution that worked for an office, but then also into other buildings as well. And so that also gives us the ability to work broadly so that we can bring a lot of different use cases with the same toolkit and everybody now has fatigue about the number of logins that they have to have and applications and so forth. So we're really trying to, to minimize that, but at the same time, minimize change management by not making people replace everything they know and love already, particularly in facilities management. Lots of people have workflow tools, Cat system systems, et cetera. We look to augment and, uh, and integrate with those rather than, than replace. You
0: have all these use cases, right? So I'm picturing, I don't know, how many do you have? How many use cases are like in the library?
1: So that's a bit of a how long is a piece of string question in the sense that like, hey, we've got a sensor that can tell you whether an object is present or not, right? So that could be your bike. It could be a fire extinguisher. It could be whether or not somebody's stolen your sandwich from the fridge. So, you know, how much of those are use cases? But if we were to boil it down, it's about sort of 30 or 35 at a push, really repeatable, like off-the-shelf use cases.
0: Got it. And and what are the? Can you talk about like what are the top maybe three to five that most people yeah. are doing?
1: Absolutely. And again, uh, if you're listening outside of 2021, then this will probably have changed. Two are uh, you know really top of mind for lots of people, especially in the corporate um, real estate space. So offices at the moment. So that's occupancy holistically. So occupancy holistically is everything from how many people are in my building to which floor are they on, which subsection of the floor, uh, to even which individual desk or meeting room and how long were they in, right? So any kind of division of that, same holds for, you know, a shopping mall. How many people are in the mall as a whole versus in uh, Target, right? So that is something that people are really keen to understand in a post-pandemic world. But this is so what to that, like what do you actually do with it, right? The, the Very common one is right-sizing the real estate. So they wanna understand what they're using so that they can either downsize the amount of buildings they own because they realize they're not using them all or they can reconfigure the buildings they have to have more collaboration space or meeting rooms or whatever it may be. Another one that that we deliver in conjunction with our global facilities management partners, uh, which is basically all of the large acronym-based facilities managers you can think of, um, is smart cleaning. So what's been used? And how do I clean only what's been used and therefore reduce the wastage that comes from, it's not even a hundred percent clean at it's 120% clean is the average cleaning regime during COVID, right? Okay. Whereas okay. the average utilization, and the utilization is different than occupancy, right? Because when you think about occupancy, that is, I've got 10 desks that can be used for 10 hours during a day. So I've got a hundred units, right? So if Joe Bloggs comes in and sits at a desk for two hours, that's 2% occupancy because he has used two of those 100 units, right? But if he happens to have spent 30 minutes of each of those hours at a different desk, so he sat four different desks for, for 30 minutes each right? Then that's 40% utilization, because that's four desks that need cleaning. The average utilization, i.e. number of desks that have been cleaned, is hovering in the 25 to 30% rate regime for, for most of our clients at the moment. <laughs> Occupancy rates are much lower, 10, 10 to 15%. S- some get some, you know, that, that's obviously an average across thousands of sites, but and some are much higher, but, you know, especially with the on- the onset of the, the Delta variant, there was a sort of easing back in and then a retraction. Um, so, right? 25% utilization. That means 75% of desks being cleaned that weren't used at all. That means a huge <laughs> amount of labor, a huge amount of chemicals, a huge amount of trips to get people there that don't need to have that. And then obviously with that cost. So that's one of the things that, that um, we see on top of uh, occupancy. So that's a use case. But if you put in occupancy, you don't have to pay more to get that use case, right? You unlock the same ability using the the that the one sensor. So yeah, uh, utilization, generally occupancy, then air quality. Uh, so we have, you know, air quality from things like particulate matter, CO2, VOCs, which is volatile organic compounds. So, you know, if you spray an aerosol or, or open a can of paint and you smell it, that's VOC. And then we use, we use um, that to to generate a virus risk indication. Hmm. Uh, so how at risk are occupants of this building of a transmitting virus? It's an indication rather than a, you know, FDA approved system. And it's based on a number of known public factors, but it's it's useful to help with things like ventilation still so that's definitely uh top of mind at the moment and then the last one is is water management plan or legionnaires disease so uh that's a respiratory disease which has come into even more focus after uh covid which again is a disease that affects your respiratory organs so those have been the four most popular at the moment but shooting up the agenda now is preventative maintenance so how do i how do i get to my equipment before it fails it? and how do i roll that out without having smart equipment so all the equipment that's been in since the 80s how can i retrofit that you know for 50 bucks and make it smart maintenance possible
0: okay so what would be an example of that like a pump that doesn't have any data coming out of it you would then add a couple of couple sensors on a couple inlet and outlet pipe and see what would you be able to
1: Typically see. it would only need to be one. Okay. So you have, you have an asset. This, there's usually one of three ways that you can know whether or not that's Something's not, not well with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, temperature, vibration, or energy draw, or a combination of all three. And then again, a proprietary algorithm on our side will tell you if something's deviating from what should be what is expected for that asset and mm-hmm. give you a warning. So, so that sort of retrofit will then tell you something is wrong, send an engineer. What it's not going to say is it's specifically this bearing within the machine, but it's going to give you that forewarning before the first you know of it is the whole thing failing and you not having okay. uh, cooling okay. for the, the whole building. True story. Yeah. We have a... Um, of a client that currently has a building completely down and it's averaging about 95 degrees this is in Chicago because they have two buildings, three chiller units, two of them failed unexpectedly. And, <laughs> and so that's like the most compelling case you can have for putting a simple sensor, right? Because that building's now non-usable.
0: Beautiful. All right. So when you have two different, so you mentioned the, the, Occupancy data can be used for maybe an asset manager planning out space, or it can be used for the cleaning person that's showing up at 9pm to run around yeah. the, the office. How does your platform serve that data to two different end users? And how does that thought process? So
1: actually, in in, in the examples you've used, you could do both of them through, through the platform. Uh, so those would be sort of fully end-to-end design use cases we have software functionality that would allow you to do that okay. but if you would prefer to do it in another way which is often the case with with occupancy you can extract the data in a number of ways right so you can download it directly in reports from the platform or you can integrate with either real-time or historic data apis with us okay. and then you can go run that through whatever kind of analytics software you want whether that's one of the big business intelligence platforms or it's your own proprietary thing the point is it's data right so once you've it and you'd use the Infigrid system to to install any sensor that you want by like any manufacturer make it very simple in the process of doing that you'll then know where the sensor is who's got permissions to it what kind of alerts are set around it etc which allows you to then use it for a bunch of different different uses right so for for cleaning that could go and integrate with your uh, janitorial teams existing workflow system, or you could use our daily generated reports to help. The point is once, once you've captured the data, you can use it for whatever use case you want now. And then of course, it exists forever. So if there's a use case that's, that's generated later that we you know you haven't thought of right now, you can use the same historic data to help benchmark. And that's the real power of it. So your future proofing for yourself, you're not only giving yourself the range of use cases now, but also what might come in future as well.
0: Super interesting. How about a few of your weirdest use cases? So those are the top five. There's got to be yeah. some weird stuff happening. Let's hear it.
1: Yeah. So so we've certainly had some some pretty uh, interesting approaches. To so I'll give you one that we we didn't pursue for various <laughs> reasons. And that was deploying to chicken houses. The working theory was that the chickens that are getting sick get hotter. So they wanted a very granular thermal profile of the chicken house to try and understand uh what was going on there so we we didn't end up pursuing that for a number of reasons but that was certainly that was certainly a novel request one that we did do a pilot with and uh ran into a problem we didn't expect was an operator of gym equipment wanted to know precisely what was being used for how long so you know how many how long were people on the 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 exercise bike or the, the treadmill or the um rowing machine or whatever it is so in most of those you know if you're putting your foot in a consistent place or or your bum in a consistent place then you can cover a sensor and it will will tell you what we didn't anticipate was people stealing them Um, because you're like what on earth would you use this for it's completely (laughs) functionless unless it's a part of the bigger system but i kid you not it took three minutes for the first one to get stolen on our test deployment like we actually watched the person steal it um we're like (laughs) you doing? <laughs> uh, <they hadn't laughs> even left the building and, and the reason wasn't actually that people like wanted to take it right it was that they were looking at their seat and seeing something like this and be like that doesn't belong there taking it off and then pocketing it without thinking about it and then they would walk off with it so so maybe stealing is a is a overly harsh term but anyway yeah. so yeah that was that was kind of weird and then you, you basically you name it people want to know it and there's always this trade-off of okay, but yeah, we had another one the other day. I, I want to know whether the plants have been watered, but this wasn't in a, you know, in a commercial uh, vertical farm, like that's mission critical. This was just like the ornamental plants in an office. And I was like, that's great, but how many have you got? They're like, oh, on average, about 200 per office. I was like, okay, so do you want to pay for 200 subscriptions to do this, just to know whether or not that, that's that been watered? And then when it comes down to it, of course, there's no ROI there, so people don't, don't pursue it. And that, that's the kind of stage that, that we now as a company are like, you know, we, we're we not a static product. If there's a new use case out there, we will work with you to solve the problem if there's enough scale to it. I always give an example in terms of like, say one of the things we work with is a little haptic button, right? So I'll say, right, okay, if you, James, want a button for your desk that's like press and somebody brings me a coffee from the local coffee shop, I'm not gonna build that for you because it's not enough scale to it, right? And this is where you boot me off the podcast. <laughs> but if I am a serviced office provider who has a 100,000 meeting rooms globally that wants a functionality that says, bring coffee to this meeting room because then I'll charge for it, we'll build that because that's got enough scale. And then you, James, can benefit from the fact that that functionality exists, right? And that's kind of how we evolve in that user-centric model. But uh,
0: I, I need that. I have, yeah. a, I have a coffee shop a block from my apartment here All right. if they would bring <laughs> me a latte every few hours that'd be sweet exactly <laughs> love it uh very cool anything else to leave us with uh this has been super insightful thank you
1: yeah i would just say look uh, whether it's with infrared or not um the the digitization of buildings is is essential And the transition to to an ESG friendly and sustainable planet is is just inevitable, right? You need no more evidence than the fact that McKinsey estimates its largest practice within three years will be its sustainability practice to know that the ESG transformation is the new digital transformation. So if you are anyone who is involved in a large amount of real estate or facilities provision to them and you're not thinking about that, Give us a call and we'll sort of give you a few ideas of what other people have been thinking about and, you know, just food for thought or or give somebody a call because I think over the the coming um, years, it will definitely be essential. Awesome. All right.
0: Ready for two truths and a lie?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First one, I have a favorite ancestor and that ancestor led a cavalry charge at the age of 84. And the history books record that he perished gloriously in that process. Not recorded whether of that that was as a result of an arrow or a heart attack, but uh, all right. That's number number one. That's first one. Number two. I am completely allergic to chili. Um, and so I had to be really, really careful because even a small amount, it's it's not like allergy. It's that it will just make my face really swell up and very hard for me to, to talk and so forth. So yeah, I fare better in, in the U S than I do in the UK where we have a lot of cultural influence from, from India. And the third one is that I am well, well remembered within my regiment. There was a deployment, a, a training deployment that we went on on our tanks and it was with a friendly allied force who kindly let us use their the training area in the process of coming in from this exercise there were probably about 100 tanks returning to this training area only one of them ran over the really solid metal perimeter fence in the process of trying to turn in though and that was my tank and the result was a poor allied soldier had to, to what's called stag on or stand duty all night because this the perimeter was no, no longer secure. So that was wonderfully embarrassing for me. And I will never live it down.
0: <laughs> Man, this is a tough one. I honestly don't know. And I'm going to guess that you're not allergic to chili.
1: That is true. I am not. I love chili, love spicy foods, does come from the cultural influence. You know, there, there are uh, curry houses everywhere in, uh, in mm-hmm. the UK. We have our own blend of it, but, but I absolutely love it. And then I really love Mexican and Tex Mex. So I'm in my happy place when I'm in. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, we just don't do it as well in the UK as as you guys do in the States. So uh, I'm place there.
0: Yeah, it would be tough for you to live in Austin if you uh, couldn't do chili. That's
1: exactly, <laughs> exactly.
0: But the, the Indian influence reminds me of the one of the episodes of Ted Lasso. Is Ted Lasso an, uh, a popular show in the UK? Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, very funny. <laughs>
0: uh, that's great.
1: There, um, there's one. There's one other product that's actually very popular in the US as well. Um, that is a result of the sort of British um, history in India. And that's the IPA, which stands for Indian uh, Pale Ale. Yeah. And uh, that's because it was a, a particular type of ale that was brewed to last the the, the long journey down around the south of, of South Africa and onwards to, to India. So it's bre- brewed in a, a certain way, originally because of that journey. Uh, and now, like, personally, my favourite type of, of beer, and that's something I do love within the US, is the massive pr- proliferation of craft beer. What I will say, though, is, you all have strong constitutions because the average ABV is like 8% or 16% proof, right? Like yeah. 8% ABV and 16% proof. Whereas it's probably more like a uh, 4% here. Like mm-hmm. we do the session ales and, and IPAs better. So wow. I come back to us and you like, you go to a restaurant, you're like, oh, I'll have the ale, And you're like, how much is it? But they're like, yeah, 9%. I'm like, cool. I'll have this one and I'll be off to bed.
0: That, that is very, very true. Also my favorite, my favorite beer is the IPA. So yes. Didn't know that, though. I think I learned that at some point, and you're reminding me of that fact. So anyway. I'm
1: probably I'm, sort of mullering the detail of it, but that is... Yeah, that is no in again. general,
0: that's just... Well, thanks, Will, for coming on the show. This has been super fun.
1: Yeah, absolute pleasure. Anytime. And yeah, as I say, if anyone's got any questions, whether it's about IPAs or APIs, just <laughs> let me know. There we go. That was an accidental zinger, wasn't it? Uh, so, um, yeah. <laughs> brilliant.
0: All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart buildings industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day.